Welcome to episode number 62 of the Burning Life podcast. My name is Adam and I'm your host on the podcast where we discover birds and the people that pursue them. Today's guest is Peter Harrison. Peter is an ornithologist, author, artist, conservationist and an adventurer. He has been described as the David Attenborough of the seas. In this interview, he shares how his love for birds and the ocean started, the process behind writing and illustrating the books that he has written, and he tells us all about his new book, Seabirds, The New Identification Guide. He also gives us a short taste of what one of his talks is like, and all I can say is, prepare for goosebumps. Included in the episode is a short chat with Andrew de Bloch from BirdLife South Africa, who will give us some important updates about the Flock to Marion 2022. As always, The Birding Life is proud to be associated with Swarovski Optic, one of the world's leading producers of binoculars, monoculars, and spotting scopes, as well as the Bird Lasser bird logging app. One of the reasons why I'm so passionate about the Bird Lasser app is when I use it on the field to keep a record of what I've seen and I keep my life list, at the same time I'm making a valuable contribution to conservation. Best of all, the app is 100% free. Download the app on either iOS or Android and play your part in social conservation. If you want to support the work we are doing, an easy way to do this is to buy us a coffee. Simply click on the link in the comment section of this episode to buy us a coffee or two. Thanks for all the support. So that's enough of my waffling. Let's get into today's interview with Peter Harrison. So Peter, I want to welcome you to the Burning Life podcast. I was saying to you before the show, when I started this podcast, you were one of the guests that I really had on my wish list to have on the on this pod, on the show, and I'm really excited to get to chat to you tonight. So welcome. Thank you so much. I'm really delighted to be here virtually. We are, of course, separated by hemispheres and also many, many thousands of miles, but uh, nice to be speaking to you from the United States. So the first time I heard you speak, I, everyone was telling me how amazing your talks were on the, the previous block to see and at the BirdLife South Africa Virtual Bird Fair in 2020, I got to hear your talk when you spoke on the albatrosses and I was absolutely blown away for your presentation. I think for, for two weeks after that, everyone who I spoke to got to hear about your talk about the albatrosses. So let's ask the question, why seabirds? Well, the sea has always been a huge part of my life. My interest in seabirds began in the 1950s during my boyhood days at Brixham. For those of you that don't know Brixham, it's a small but busy fishing port on the southern coast of southwest England. I was surrounded by men of the sea, the noise of winches and pulleys, and the smell of diesel, fish, and tobacco smoke. And so began, quite honestly, my love of the ocean and its seabirds, and also for the people who worked it, the fishermen, sailors, and mariners. I had an opportunity to read the preface of your new book, and you wrote about how your interest for sea and the seabirds grew almost over your whole life. And I especially love the story of how when you were 10 years old, you got a pair of binoculars from your father. So for the sake of the listeners who haven't got the chance to read the preface of the book yet, talk us a little bit more about how this love for seabirds did develop over the years. Well, my father was a seaman. He was an officer in the Royal Navy, and he spent long months away at sea returning home with stories of strange lands and his bags often heavy with presents for my mother and his three sons and single daughter. After one such absence, he returned home after more than a year at sea. This voyage had taken him first down to Simonstown, where he spent a few weeks, and then east to Hong Kong and Singapore. And he returned home with his bags filled with multiple presents for all the family but me. 
I had just one present, which he saved till the very last to give out. It was relatively small, a single rectangular box. At last he picked it up. He cautioned me that although small, my gift cost as much as all the other presents put together, and that it was a present really for grown-ups. As his eldest son, I was expected to treat this with great care and responsibility. He had actually promised me this present a year before, having seen what he himself referred to as my passion when I spoke, sketched, or watched birds. I can tell you, I was trembling with excitement as I opened the box, and in it I discovered a leather case, and undoing that, inside was a pair of brand new Heiko 8x30 binoculars, complete with a leather strap. I don't mind telling you, I just burst into tears. I was just 10 years old, but really, from that moment onward, my course was set. Whatever else happened in my life, birds in the ocean would be its driving force. And birds have always been important to me. By my early teens, I was a regular but novice watcher during autumn gales at St. Ives in West Cornwall. Under the tutelage of such legendary Cornish bird watchers as Roy Phillips and Laurie Williams, one classic storm stands out in my memory. It was late October, the season of the gales. The wind raged and screamed all around us. Below the Atlantic roared inward, dashing itself against the Cornish coast. The bay was a maelstrom of foaming white caps and black, watery hollows. And above the troughs, with contemptuous ease, the gannets rode out the storm, rising and falling in long white lines, thousands upon thousands escaping the storm like retreating troops from a Napoleonic war. Hardly a minute passed without the shout of Bonksy, Skewer, Petrol, or Sabines. Until then, most of my birding had been with terrestrial species, but that gale converted my attention to seabirds. I have been a seabirder ever since. These were my formative years. It was the perfect start for a life that would be filled with epic adventures and endless travel and research opportunities in pursuit of my greatest love, seabirds. Birds that live where others cannot, over, on, and in the open ocean. So you mentioned there that you've been on many expeditions around the world and what are some of the places you've been able to visit and which stand out as some of your favorite destinations? Uh, great question. Absolutely great question. I have been blessed with a lifestyle almost as itinerant as my beloved albatrosses and I have visited just about every major seabird island on the planet. Only Lord Howe Island, I would say, is an island that I have not been to. And you know, it is hard finding favorites. It's like having children. How can you have favorites? You love each one for different reasons. That said, the Pacific Ocean, particularly in the South and West, are home to a bewildering array of petrels and shearwaters, species like Beck's petrel and Heinroth shearwater. These are some of the rarest and most enigmatic seabirds in the world today, species that still to this day, no nest or egg have ever been found. But if I had to choose one destination, it would have to be probably Antarctica, a region that I have visited well over 150 times. In fact, I lost count at 180 or so. I was hoping to get to 200, but I don't think I ever will, but certainly over 150 times to Antarctica. It sits at the bottom of our world, white, cold, and shivering. It is our last true remaining wilderness, a place of ice and penguins, a place of haunting and indelible beauty. But then, of course, there is South Georgia. South Georgia is my mistress, 
a lady from, from whom I can never escape. She holds me in her icy grasp. South Georgia is often dubbed the Alps in mid-ocean, home to over 60 million pairs of seabirds. I want you to imagine this. It's an island just 90 miles in length, and it has snow-capped peaks that rise 9,500 feet above the surrounding roiling ocean, and it's crammed with thousands upon thousands of penguins. Everybody on this planet should visit the ethereal and magical island called South Georgia. Indeed, if I had just seven days to live, four would be spent at South Georgia. And in case you and your listeners are wondering about the other three, it's just getting to South Georgia. And if I could be even more precise of South Georgia, my spot would be the Bay of Isles, made famous by perhaps the greatest seabirder in the world. And that was Robert Cushman Murphy. He was a biologist who penned the immortal words. I have now joined the higher cult of mortals, for I have seen the albatross. For your listeners, if you haven't read it, read Logbook for Grace, a compilation of stories and events that Murphy wrote to his wife over the years he was in the Southern Oceans. It is memorable and magical. So South Georgia rates as my favorite place on the planet, an island which just recently was returned to a pristine state after over 200 years being filled with rats that were introduced in the days of whaling and sealing. South Georgia is now rat-free and makes it perhaps the most important bird island anywhere in the world. Something interesting about Antarctica, which I read in your bio, is that's actually the place where you met your wife, Shirley. Yes, it is. My wife, Shirley, is um, a modern-day explorer. Back in 1989, she became one of the first two women to actually ski overland to the South Pole, a journey of over 800 miles. I'm often asked, did you go with her? And I hold up my hands in horror and I said, of course not, no birds. <laughs> in actual fact, there has been one species recorded at the South Pole and fittingly enough, the South Pole was skewer. So in 2019, you were invited to speak at the House of Lords at the place of Westminster in London and you did a talk on Gough Island. So why does this place hold such a special place in your heart? Well, it's a little bit like South Georgia. Most people, birders included, apart from South Africans, I think most South Africans know exactly where Gough, Gough is, but most people in the world, including birders, would not have heard of Gough Island. It is just 57 square kilometers in extent. It's an extinct volcano that sits alone south of the Tristan de Cunha group on the South Atlantic Ridge and which last erupted two and a half thousand years ago. It is home to literally millions of seabirds and even a few land birds. The seabirds include the endemic Tristan albatross, a bird that faces imminent extinction. And even the land bird there, the Gough bunting, faces imminent extinction. And that extinction will come from the introduced house mouse. It's one of the most important seabird islands in the world, but all is not well. Because the house mouse was introduced back in the days of whaling and sealing, those 17 and 1800s, they have now turned into ferocious flesh-eating predators. And they take or kill 80 to 90% of all eggs and chicks, including those of the Tristan albatross. This is a disaster. This is a disaster on a global scale. And the reason I was speaking at the House of Lords was to raise awareness to the plight of the birds and other life forms of Gough Island. In the years that fall have followed since 2019, we have put together 
an eradication team. And as I speak at this very moment, there is a team, an international team, led by the New Zealand rodent specialist, Pete McClellan, to rid Gough Island. It's a long shot. We're there. We are beginning to spread bait. And we are hoping that we can do what we did at South Georgia. South Georgia is an island 90 miles long. Gough is much smaller, but the terrain is far more difficult. It is, without doubt, one of the most important eradication projects in the world today. I first visited Gough Island in the 70s, and it remains one of my greatest travel memories. Gough, quite simply, is a seabird citadel. Along with South Georgia, it is the most important bird island, seabird island, certainly in the world, literally without equal, and it must be saved. It's too important to be lost, and several birds will become extinct as they are found nowhere else. After Gough, we should then turn our attention to Marion. We have much work to do in the Southern Ocean, returning these islands to their pristine state. What I found fascinating was the story about the process that didn't go into this book necessarily, but went into your first book. It was an 11-year process that went into your first book, Seabirds, the Identification Guide, that was published in 1983. Tell us a little bit about those 11 years and how that process looked. Well, before I get into the 11 years, um, I, I should actually go into how it really came about because that was a life-changing moment. And so I would like to go back to the time when I was 23 years of old, uh, sorry, 23 years of age. I was living and working in London and I had a peach of a job. It's the sort of job that I tell my girls, my daughters and granddaughters, this is what you look for in a job. It was an absolute peach of a job. I was part of a team working in London that actually designed British embassies Let me repeat that. My job was designing British embassies. God forbid, as unlikely as it seems, I was a civil servant. I was a member of the so-called dreaded establishment. I had been working at the ministry for well over a year. And as jobs go, as I said, it was a peach of a job. It had all the boxes ticked. It had, for instance, job security. It was a government job after all. I had paid leave. And I even had an index link pension. And because of being a creative person, dealing with art and so forth, it fulfilled my creative needs. Yet, as I stood there with the other seven and a half million people on their way to work on that cold, blustery November morning, I was suddenly gripped in a morbid terror. You see, some of my fellow team members that worked at the ministry had worked in the same office for over 40 years. And it suddenly struck me on that November morning, was that going to be my fate, my life? In that flash of a few seconds, I made a decision that forever changed my life. I did not want to reach age 65 and then wonder what I had done with my time. I decided there and then in that instant that my life lacked direction. Birds, and in particular seabirds, were my great passion. And I was convinced that if I followed that passion, I would never look back at my life with regret. Now, at that time, in the early 70s, there was only a small rudimentary book called Birds of the Ocean. It was written by W.B. Alexander and first published in 1928. I made a plan, and it was a simple plan, but a little audacious. As I stood on that London street in November of 1972, I decided I would write and illustrate a modern seabird guide. It was as simple as that. The hard part was the decision. The easy part was putting everything into place. 
I walked into the architect's office the following week and I handed in my resignation. I sold my modest house in Croydon, southeast London, sorry, southwest London, and I bought a long wheelbase Land Rover. And believe it or not, within six months of that November morning, I found myself high above the Arctic Circle in Finland, sketching ivory and Sabine's gulls. It was the beginning of a seven-year globe-trotting odyssey during which I drove around the world, including the overland journey from Nordkap in Northern Europe all the way down to Cape Town. That alone was a journey of some 18 months. And that's where I spent about two and a half to three years in the Cape Town area because Cape Town and the seas around South Africa are so good for seabirds. I visited every major seabirding site I could throughout Europe, Africa, Australia, and the Americas, and also including areas in the Arctic and the Antarctic. That was a seven-year odyssey. I returned eventually to England, and that's when the hard work began. The previous seven years was all fun. The hard work was the following four years. One year to write my first book, and three years, 88 plates in total, three years to illustrate the book. And then there it was in 1983, my first book, Seabirds, an Identification Guide. These were some of the very best days of my life. I was young, I was free, and I was following my passion, Seabirds. And just interesting, how did the first book impact the birding world? As like you already mentioned, this book was a lot more comprehensive than any other seabird book available at the time. Adam, I was blown away. I was very pleased and flattered by its reception. It's hard to talk about yourself when people ask you know, such questions, but let me give you some quotes. Roger Tory Peterson hailed it, its publication as a red letter event for the Field Glass Fraternity. And Ron Levine, writing for the American Birding Association, called it an unparalleled achievement, arguably the best bird guide of any kind or any generation. I was simply blown away. More recently, in 2021, Steve Howell and Kirk Zufeld described the book, the 1983 book, as Peter Harrison's classic. And I suppose it was. It was the first modern monograph of a group of birds. Up until that time, bird guides tend to be of areas, birds of East Africa, birds of Europe and near Asia, uh, birds of North America. But this was the first time that a group of birds, a type of birds, and of course, a seabird, this was the, time, the first time that seabirds had really been taken and treated globally. In other words, every single one that we knew of was written about and illustrated in that 1983 book seabirds. And all that because you chose to follow your dream. It's an amazing story and very inspirational. Yes, thank you on that. And I'm still on that journey. It's been a, a long journey and it continues. And each each year, new things occur. And, um, and we are still looking at seabirds. And, you know, they are enigmatic. They're very hard to see. Most seabirds stay well away from land. And, um, yeah, seabirds are enthralling because of their mysteries. We still know so little about them and what they do and what they are capable of. We'll get back to the interview with Peter in a moment. We just want to have a quick chat with Andrew DeBlock from BirdLife South Africa about the 2022 Flock to Marion. Okay, so we are in the middle of an interview with Peter Harrison and we thought I thought it was a great time to get a quick update on the Flock to Marion. So I want to welcome Andrew DeBlock from BirdLife South Africa to the show. Hey Adam, good to be back. Just to start off, what is Flock and what is the history of these Flock to Sea Voyages? So Flock is an annual thing that BirdLife South Africa does. Essentially, it's an event 
once a year where we get our supporters and members together. Uh, often it's, or most of the time, it's attached to our AGM as well, but uh, we usually run some birding events. So there's been, you know, flock on the West Coast, uh, flock to Durban. This year was supposed to be flock to wilderness, of course. COVID put paid to that. Um, and then we've taken now three of these flocks uh, offshore. Um, so this is the third time we were chartering a cruise ship and taking it out to sea and taking all the birders with us. So um, we've had flock to sea, flock to sea again in 2017. And that was also known as flock to nowhere and was a huge, uh, hugely memorable trip in, in South African birding circles. And then now this is flock to, to Marion, which is probably the most ambitious and exciting of the lot so far. So what made BirdLife South Africa choose Marion Island as the destination? So Marion Island is uh, part of the Prince Edward Islands group. Uh, so that is made up of Prince Edward Island and Marion Island, the two of them. And they're owned by South Africa. So we, we have these foreign territories in the middle of the subantarctic ocean. Generally, there's only a few people living out there, mostly researchers and meteorologists. Um, but there's a, a huge amount of conservation concern around Marion with invasive house mice and, and BirdLife South Africa as the protectors of South Africa's birds. Of course, that includes Marion Island and Prince Edward Island. So uh, we've been involved in this mouse-free Marion project for a while now, and it's going to be going ahead in the next couple of years. And we thought this would be an, an epic way to introduce South Africans to a part of South Africa that 99% of people firstly don't know about, but uh, will also never get to. Um, so we just thought this was a really great way to bring some awareness to the project, to take people to parts of South Africa that they've never been to. And uh, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's really being highly anticipated by the birding public. And then once birders are on board, what can they expect? Well, it's going to be, uh, for, the, for those of you who are on previous uh, flocks, you, you know what to expect. It's uh, a crazy gathering of about 2,000 birders. Uh, I don't think there's been as big a gathering for as sustained a period ever potentially, um, in the world. Um, having 2,000 birders in the same place for a week is pretty incredible. Um, you can expect some amazing pelagic birding. We, we're trying to organize a few hours in the, in the deep in the South African uh, exclusive economic zone, which means that those birds will be tickable for, for South Africa. It's going to be incredible. We've got 40 expert guides on board, just over 40 guides. Uh, you're going to have all the amazing cruise ship entertainment and uh, catering and everything that it comes, everything that comes expected with, you know, a high quality uh, cruise provider like MSC. So it's it's going to be an epic once of a life once in a lifetime trip. So you touch on the all important question about the list. So what are some of the special birds that birders can expect to add to their lists? Yeah, well, firstly, I think it's it's important to clear up that uh, the birds within 200 nautical miles of the South African continental coastline are countable for your Southern African lists. Um, and of course, your South African list. Once we move past that uh, 200 nautical mile mark, we move outside of the South African and Southern African areas. Uh, once we enter within 200 nautical miles of Marion Island, that means we're back in South African territory. So you can count that on your South African list. Unfortunately, it won't be eligible for your Southern African list because that's a continentally defined geographic region. But if you do keep a South African list, um, then you will be able to count those birds. And there's going to be some incredible birds out there. I mean, apart from all the amazing pelagic birds like wandering albatrosses, um, some of the sooty albatrosses that uh, people saw on the, on the previous flock, including the light-mantled sooty albatross, uh, petrels, shearwaters, diving petrels, all the rest. Um, at Marion itself, there's also three birds that people can't see uh, anywhere else uh, in, in South Africa. So that's that's Lesser Sheathbill, 
the Kerguelen tern and the Crazy shag, which is a species of cormorant. Um, so we're hoping to uh, get close enough to the island that we can tick off those three species, which are, are more kind of coastal species rather than pelagic species. Uh, so plenty of amazing birding to look forward to. Something I've seen with uh, various flock at sea voyages is that you guys always have amazing guides. So tell us about the guides that will be available on the Flock to Marion voyage. Yeah, so we're going to have just over 40 guides. I think uh, we've got 42 signed up at the moment. Um, that number may fluctuate by one or two. Peter Harrison, of course, who's your star guest this week, is uh, one of our guides, one of our premier guides. Of course, he is um, the seabird guru worldwide. So it's amazing that we have the services of someone so uh, experienced and uh, um, such an expert in the field. We have a lot of the local guides that people will know, people like Trevor Hardacre, John Graham, these guys who've spent years and years at sea guiding pelagics off of Cape Town, um, some other names that people might be familiar with, like Neil Perrins. Um, he's been guiding a lot of pelagics off of uh, Durban as well. Got a good contingent from all the local tour operators like Cape Town Pelagics, like Birding Eco Tours, Rock Jumper have supplied a, a huge number of guides as well. Um, and we've got a few international guides joining us uh, also from the Rock Jumper contingent. So an incredibly uh, experienced group of people that are going to be pointing out the seabirds to you at sea. So a question I know you've been asked many times on social media is will, will, we, be able, will we be able to get onto Marion Island? Yeah, so this is a question we fielded a lot and, and we've tried to be upfront from the beginning. Um, as I said, there are conservation concerns already about uh, invasive mice on the island and we don't want to make that any worse with uh, introducing any potential rats or insects or anything from, from the ship. So we, we cannot actually get onto Marion Island. Also, the logistics of getting 2,000 people off of a cruise ship onto Marion, which has very limited kind of landing space, would be an absolute nightmare. So no, we're not going to get onto Marion Island. Um, that island is very well protected and reserved for people like researchers. Um, so we will not get onto Marion Island. We are working on getting a permit to enter the marine protected area. Um, the idea would be to try and get to within a few hundred meters of shore. We can anchor there and we should pretty easily be able to scope out um, those three kind of coastal birds that I, I had mentioned. And I, I would be surprised if we don't get sheath bulls. Uh, being the curious birds that they are, even flying out to the ship and landing on board. So that's something potentially to look forward to. And then what about birding in Cape Town and Durban before and after the trip? Yeah, there's plenty of people that are very keen on on making the most out of Flock to Marion. Uh, people that are potentially not from Cape Town or Durban and, and wanting to do some land-based birding while they're there. So a number of the tour operators I mentioned who are supplying guides are also uh, oper uh, operating pre and post uh, voyage trips and uh, these are up, you know, from from one to I think five days in these different locations of course the Cape has some incredible endemism and some great birds that can be seen and the same in Durban I mean those those uh, tropical uh, areas along the coast of Durban are, are renowned in South Africa as being some of the best birding areas in the country so especially for any international lis listeners uh, who who are coming out uh, and joining Flock to Marion, make sure to make the most of the trip and sign up for one of these uh, pre- or post-trip uh, add-ons as well. I think it'll really add to your trip. What about the merchandise options available around the cruise? Yeah, so this is something we're working on right now. Um, we're in uh, negotiations with Johnson's Workwear. They've done previous uh, Flock trips as well. Uh, they make very high-quality, very durable uh, gear. And, of course, going to Marion Island, which is considered by some to be the windiest place on earth. 
Um, it's also going to be uh, fairly cold, despite it being um, uh, technically summer. We're probably talking single digits most of the days. We're down at the extreme south. So we need some really good gear, and we, we are uh, getting this at a good price from Johnson's. Um, and we're going to have a range of other kind of gear, whether it's jackets or beanies or scarves or um, buffs and um, all the, and all the rest that, that comes with one of these regular voyages. So uh, it's something to look out for in the very, very near future. We'll, we'll start opening orders uh, quite soon. And then all importantly, is there still space and how does one go about booking? Yes, there is. So we're at about, uh, I think the last update we had from MSC was 85% full. So really, there aren't a huge number of spots left. And I think all of the cabins that aren't booked yet are inside cabins. Uh, I wouldn't think that that's really a, an obstruction to, to joining because if you're a serious birder, you're going to be spending most of your day on deck anyway. So it doesn't really matter if you're sleeping inside or with a view. Um, but yes, there are only inside cabins as far as I know. Uh, the way to book is to do it through MSC. BirdLife South Africa is not managing any bookings ourselves. So call up the MSC hotline, ask about the Flock to Marion trip and uh, book one of these places before they're all gone. Thanks, Andrew, for your time. I really appreciate it. What we'll do is we'll pop all the necessary links and phone numbers into the comments section of this podcast, but it's been good to chat to you. Thanks, Adam. Always uh, great to be on the podcast, and thanks for the support. So you're about to release your latest work, Seabirds, the New Identification Guide, nearly 40 years after the release of your first book. So what are some of the differences between the two books? Well, firstly, unlike my original 1983 publication, which was hailed by Steve Madge as a monumental one-man piece of work. It was obvious from the outset of this new book that I would need assistance with a project that promised to be so much larger and expansive. Remember, in that first book, there were 88 plates. In this new book, there are staggering 239 plates. So I especially needed help with certain sections. And so rather than being a one-man show, I needed some help. And I realized that I would never live long enough because I started this project when I was 60 years of age. And I realized that I couldn't, I would never live long enough. And my eyes would probably go at some stage. And even though I was 60, I was, had fairly good eyesight at that stage. My eyesight is much worse now. But I just knew that I would not live long enough to be able to complete all the plates. So I needed help. And I needed help particularly with the Laraday, the gulls, terns, and skimmers. At all costs, I wanted to avoid becoming trapped in an avian quagmire. I needed to engage a recognized gull expert and artist who understood the complex and often bewildering taxonomy and who could make sense of species boundaries. The choice seems hard, but actually it was very easy. I chose the young and talented Swedish artist Hans Larsson. For those of you that don't know Hans's work, he had recently completed 43 full-color plates for the acclaimed Gulls of Europe, Asia, and North America, written by renowned gull expert Klaus Malin Olsen. Hans was soon at work on the project. It took him 10 years. Let me repeat that. It took him 10 years working almost exclusively on this project to complete the artwork for the gulls, terns, skimmers, and skewers, and sea ducks. Yes, we cover sea ducks in this guide. 93 full-color plates in total. As a fellow artist, I am often left in awe at his economy of stroke, his use of shadow to depict form, and the seemingly carefree inclusion of detail in his work. He is one of the planet's most gifted bird artists. He is superbly talented and yet humble and modest. Hans' contribution to this project has been truly significant. And then there was another person 
that played a huge role in this publication. A few years from conclusion of the project, some three or four years ago, I was leading an apex expeditions voyage to New Zealand's sub-Antarctic islands. We were in the lee of Campbell Island. The ne- there was a near gale blowing. A fellow voyager approached me. He was one Martin Perrault. He had impressed me on the voyage as a person who had done his homework. He knew his birds and confidently called out name after name. He often took an impish delight in beating me to an identification on such species as fairy, fulmer, and broadbill prions. I immediately liked him. He was a rascal. He was really a fun person. And I found myself seeking his company on deck. He was witty and he was obviously very smart and gifted, especially as an observer. Over the course of the voyage, I learned that Martin was indeed a professional ornithologist, and he specialized in wind study farms, had written several books, and was an excellent editor of all things ornithological. Late in the voyage, he approached me with an impish look in his eye. He had heard that I was making or working on a, a new seabird guide, and he asked, did I have any text with me? Could he look it over and make comments? Three hours later, he was back. Get this, Adam. He looked me straight in the eyes, handed me back the manuscript sample, and simply announced to me and those around me, you need me. (laughs) Martin Perro had arrived. Can you imagine that? If I look back on my life, it was a pivotal moment. And that relatively short period, we formed a really fantastic relationship. And in the short time that Martin has been involved, he took over the text. Some of these texts had been written 10 years or more before. He looked at them, he added structure, he added uniformity, and he also was very careful at cross-referencing everything. We have over 22 pages of references in this new Seabird Guide. So he tightened up the taxonomy and the relationships and revamped it all to include the latest research findings. The project has been greatly enhanced by his involvement. So between Hans, Martin, and myself, we formed a team, and teams do better than individuals. And so it was, the thing all came to a head earlier this year, and the book is now in press as I speak. What's really interesting is you've had nearly 40 years between the two books, and you've been able to do many global expeditions around the world. The question I want to ask is, from your observations, how has the state of the oceans and seabirds changed in this time? Sadly... In my 50 years or more of traveling, the oceans of our fragile world, things have certainly changed and almost nowhere for the better. Whole ecosystems have been ripped apart. I see populations in decline almost everywhere I look, and this is all due to human impact. It starts, of course, obviously with such things as bycatch in the fisheries operations. We have plastics being ingested by seabird after seabird. And we also have the introduction of non-native mammalians, even things as seemingly weak and ineffectual as a house mouse to be introduced at breeding colonies where they have done absolutely devastating uh, work, reducing seabird numbers. Seabirds are quite simply, and maybe your listeners don't know this, but if you look at birds of the world generally, seabirds as a group are the most threatened seabirds, sorry, the most threatened group of birds in the world. No group is more threatened. 
we really have to act if we are to save the seabirds of the world. And in saving the seabirds, we will save our oceans. And by saving our oceans, we will save the planet. So you both write and illustrate books. I know you spoke about the fact that you had a team, and but this book has taken about 15 years to complete. So tell us about the work that goes into putting together a book of this kind of magnitude. Well, persistence is the first word that springs to mind with a question like that followed by a word called patience, sometimes both in very short supply in our modern world. And oh, it really helps. <laughs> and I should add this, it really helps if you have a partner that who believes in you and supports you no matter how long the project takes and how late you are in completing different sections or certain sections of, of a project. As I mentioned earlier, I think I started this project at age 60 in 2006. I thought this would take 10 to 11 years, about the time that my first book took. But now I'm about to turn 75 years of age, and it is the year 2021. So we are way overrun on this project. Normally, the idea of a book is the easiest thing and the quickest thing you decide upon. So you want to write a book. What do you want to write about? Seabirds, seabirds of the world. It sounds quite straightforward, but it is normally far from that. So the idea of the book is the one that is the easiest, but then you have to look at it. You have to start planning. You have to be very careful about what your objective is. Are you doing biology? Are you doing identification? Are you doing something else? Perseverance is a word that is very important when you take on projects of this nature. They tend to be long and it takes perseverance to complete a project. Contrary to um, expectations, the longer a project uh, goes for, the closer uh, it comes to actually not being finished. And you would think that getting closer to being finished uh, would actually happen as you got closer to the finishing line, but that is not the case. Normally, it's as you, for year after year, you suddenly run out of steam and things then don't get finished and you lose interest. So that's the thing you have to really guard against. So first of all, find a partner that believes in you. Find somebody that uh, will be there to support you. Look at what you have to do. Make plans to do it. And then day by day, step by step, carry through those thoughts and those things that you need to do to complete the project. Nobody can climb Everest in a single day. But step by step, inch by inch, it can be achieved. And that is the case with, I think, most books. In this case, this one took some 15 years to do the research and everything begins with research once you've done the research you can then start designing text you can start thinking about your maps and finally to the plates first by sketching the layouts and then finally by painting the plates and the facing captions take up 540 of the 600 pages of this book and they are the heart and soul of the book and there are some 3800 individual images and as I mentioned before, 239 colored plates. It has been truly a Herculean effort to do all this and to make sure that we've eventually reached the finish line, which was about three weeks to four weeks ago. So let's start going into a little bit about the detail about the book. So firstly, let's look. At, let's check about the text write-ups. What do the text write-ups in the book cover? Well, firstly, as I think most people would know, you can divide birds into certain groups. And just like you could say there are ducks, there are eagles, there are falcons, there are sparrows, there are warblers. And so it is with seabirds, you can divide them up into about 25 or so different groups. And so 
the book is arranged in such a way that each group of birds, you can think of a sea duck, you can think of a grebe, you can think of a storm petrel, a penguin, a loon, a tropic bird. Each of these groups have an introductory section. And these introductory sections vary from one to eight pages in length, depending on the complexity of the birds involved. And this is where you will find identification keys, which are additional illustrations to the plates. So each group of seabird, be you a loon, a cormorant, a pelican, a frigate bird, each group has an introduction and it outlines current knowledge, particularly of taxonomy, which is very confusing these days with lots of changes. So we have taxonomy covered, we have ecology, and we also have a quickfire guide to key identification features for use by anyone around the globe with an interest in seabirds, be they beginners or experts. And this is also where we list the number of genera within each group and also the number of species. The facing plate texts um, summarize key identification features. So after the introduction section, you immediately go to the, the species sections, which are the plates and the facing plate texts. And these texts summarize the key identification features. The object of this book is identification. That's what we're after here. We do include biology. We include other things, but it's identification that we are really after. So the play facing plate text summarize key ID features, the jizz, the behavior, and voice, and also, of course, separation from confusion species. And we also list timings of breedings, movements, and migration, um, which is supported by individual color maps, all in the same area. So you have a facing plate with up to two or even three species occasionally uh, depicted, and then you have your text opposite, and the map is embedded in the text. So at a glance, you can see where the birds are, you can see what they look like, and you can read about key identification features, just behavior, voice, and so forth. So the book covers 435 species of seabirds in the book. What are some of the family groups that have been included in the book? Well, this new definitive guide covers all of the world's seabird families and groups. And that, of course, includes sea ducks, grebes, gulls, terns, noddies, skuas, orcs, tropic birds, loons, penguins, albatrosses, storm petrels, petrels, shearwaters, frigate birds, gannets, cormorants, and pelicans. So that's a very, very wide group. And they range in size, of course, from small storm petrels, birds that are the size of a sparrow that can fit easily into the palm of an outstretched hand, to the huge albatrosses birds that have wingspans of three and a half meters. I must say, on a side note, storm petrels for me are the most fascinating birds. I mean, I've been on pelagics and I know you love albatrosses, but the storm petrels just fascinated me. You know, these small little birds and they just survive in these incredibly trying conditions. They have, they're absolutely fascinating birds. Yes, weighing just a few grams. And if you or I were put down into the ocean, even a mile offshore, we would dive without any doubt whatsoever. And yet these tiny, tiny storm petrels uh, are capable of living where we cannot out over the open ocean. And the nice thing also about some of the storm petrels, take Wilson's, which is one of the most numerous of our storm petrel species. Uh, they are capable of these very long trans-equatorial migrations. We can somehow get our head around a big bird doing migrations or movements of a thousand kilometers in a day. But a small storm petrel flying from one hemisphere to the other 
year after year, these are wonderful, wonderful movements and migrations. And storm petrels are certainly one of my favorite groups as well. So on social media, I see links have been putting previews of the book and it's absolutely stunning. And there's pictures of the plates. And like you already mentioned, the book is 239 full color plates and more than 3,800 full color um, uh, illustrations. So tell us what goes into preparing these plates. It must be an enormous, enormous task. It is enormous. It, 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 it is huge. And as mentioned earlier, the heart and soul of this book uh, are the art plates and the facing plate captions. Uh, and in these plates, we illustrate all the subspecies, morphs, plumages, ages and sexes, sexes, and with lots of detailed captions to enable idea to glance. And this is by both novice and expert birders. And so what you put into making a plate, it, it, it's a huge commitment. First off, you need to choose what you're going to be painting. That sounds an easy thing, but it can be quite complicated. And you have to judge how complicated that process is going to be. That is the species. On an average plate in the new book, you will want your plate to depict two species, birds that are similar in color or pattern or even plumage, and maybe even a close relative. For example, a king penguin and an emperor penguin. They look similar. They're both large penguins. Or you might choose a flying bird, maybe illustrate a Cape petrel against an Antarctic petrel. They are both fulmarine petrels. They're both similar in size, and they both have absolutely diagnostic plumage patterns. And that's what you want to show. If it's a complicated bird, like a gull or an albatross, you might only show one species on the plate because there are so many different plumages and some of these plumages aren't necessarily age-related. They might just be in stages with no really true molt. Maybe it's wear and abrasion. And it may come as a surprise, but in some albatrosses, it takes over 20 years to attain full adult plumage. And during those 20 years, they are constantly, albeit slowly, changing. And gulls too. Gulls are a quagmire. These birds can sometimes take four years to reach adult plumage. And as many of your listeners will know, there are juvenile plumages, there are first winters, there are first summers, there are second winters, there are second summers, there are third winters, and so on. These things can become very, very uh, complicated. And in gulls, for instance, there are some species that we have devoted two full plates to a single species. So this is a book the likes of which you have never seen. It is probably the most lavishly illustrated bird book of its type or size that certainly the world has ever seen. So once you've decided what species you're going to depict on your plates, now comes the fun stage. The fun stage is sketching outlines of birds that hopefully capture the essence of the bird, how it looks at long distance, how it looks when it's close to you, whether it's standing, sitting, swimming or flying. All of those things come into play. Then you take all those sketches and this is the hard part. You take all those sketches and then you get them to fit on your plate. You may spend three days sketching a plate, have everything more or less the right size or so you think. Then you try to put them together and absolute disaster. They don't fit. They don't fit on the half plate. They don't fit on the full plate. They just don't fit. So everything now has to be reduced by 10 or 12% or maybe 15%. You have to start again. Thank God for the modern printer. In the old days, we would have to do all this by hand. Now we just put it in and we take off 2%, 3%, 4%. We then start joining it all back together again. And we work at this until it actually fits. But once you've got your figure set on the plate, then you have to transfer them over to your canvas. 
And the canvas, of course, these days is a watercolor board. Then you start one by one, drawing out and then painting in figure by figure. This can take time, obviously time. Most of my figures take me about one hour to complete, two at the most. I'm a very, very quick artist. And art is, has to be quick. Watercolor is an unforgiving mistress, but I've learned to dance with her. And so my figures take me one to two hours. Some people will take longer. Some people will take shorter. Each plate, remember, there are 239 of them. Each plate takes at least two weeks, sometimes three weeks to complete. It is little wonder that this project, therefore, has taken us 15 years to reach the finishing line. We're living in an age where photography has really like advanced. The equipment that has come out nowadays is amazing. And there are a lot of amazing bird photographs of seabirds available all over at the moment now. So why, why use sketches and not use photographs in the book? Um, quite frankly, photographic guides do have their place in the world. But in my opinion, and this is my opinion, they're not ever as good as when a bird is drawn by an artist. My aim is always to bring the bird to life. If you are a bird artist and you spend time in the field, you know your birds. With our old field guides, many artists never went into the field. They sketched their birds from skin. They lacked the feel, the authenticity of jizz and shape. If you're out in the field, you can see a bird, you can sketch in the movement, you can sketch in the feel, you can sketch in the gestalt, the general impression and shape of the bird. Has it got a careening flight like a shearwater? Is it a flapper and glider? Is it slow and laborious like a pelican? Is it dainty and dashing, hopping from wave top to wave top like a butterfly in an August garden? All these things you try to capture as an artist. And this is what makes a drawn and painted figure so much better than just a single photographic image. My opinion, but that's the way I feel. And also you can do so many more images if you're painting rather than trying, say, for one big photograph of a single bird. So for me, painted images allow more of a bird to be shown to a person that is trying to identify the bird that is just rounding the headland two miles away. So something about seabirds is they can be really tricky to identify. Um, I've been on a couple of pelagics and I still struggle with them. So how user-friendly is the book for newer birders? The new field guide is very, very friendly. The book begins, for instance, with a 30-page introduction section that asks such basic questions as, what is a seabird? Followed by the basics of seabird identification. Most of the experienced seabirders will just bypass that because they know those things already. But for the beginners, especially for people that have not done much pelagic trips, this is a very important part of the book and should be studied carefully before progressing to the main section. So we have about a 30-page introduction section, and it's in here that topography, keys, um, illustrate all parts of a seabird. And there is even a glossary dealing with seabird vocabulary because a lot of terms we use with seabirds are not used with land birds. And for the experts in the text itself, as I mentioned earlier, we have 22 pages of references, scientific references, so that even the experienced birders will be able to look and see what the latest papers are and then do their own continuing research. So this is a book both for novices for beginners, but also for experienced birders that want to increase even more their own individual knowledge. So for beginners and experts alike, this book has been written. It's a book that's been written by a seabirder and illustrated by a seabirder for seabirders. It's that simple. Oh, after all this talk, I cannot wait for this book to come out. Um, and 
I just want to say, you know, even just getting to chat to you, I think you can't spend time with someone like yourself and not walk away with a, a serious passion for seabirds. So here's the all important question. I saw the, the images going out a couple of days ago about the fact that it's just gone into the printers. So when will the book be available? Soon. Trust me, honestly, soon, soon, soon. Only yesterday, for instance, and I'll share with your viewers that that's the 27th of May. Only yesterday on the 27th of May, we were watching sections of the book coming off the printer's press in Barcelona and being cut, sliced and folded and eventually will be stitched together. So as we speak at the moment, the book is being produced. Uh, my guess would be sometime in mid-June, the first of the hard copies will be coming uh, out onto the streets. And so mid-June, I think, is realistic. Uh, but remember, this is a fairly large book. It's very complicated. We have 600 pages, and I will say exactly 600 pages, not 601 or 602, but 600 pages. And they all have to be stitched and put together. But from what I'm looking at on the presses, it is looking so good. And the one word that most people use when they look at this book is the word beautiful. I must say, just uh, for listeners around the world, and we've ordered in South Africa, and if, you, if you're South African, you'll know what I'm saying. The postal service in South Africa can be challenging, to say the least. And we, I got the book through a courier company, the, well, not this book, the previous book through Lynx Editions. And you know, for people around the world ordering from Lynx, they are uh, a world-class company, and the the packaging the book comes in is just, you know, the, the packaging blows your mind already. And I just want to show people around the, the world, I mean, you're ordering from a, a top-class company who take customer service very seriously. Yes, I would endorse that. Uh, Lynx are an exceptionally professional company and uh, and the postage system, mostly worldwide, uh, works incredibly well. So you'll be the keynote speaker at the 2022 BirdLife South Africa flock to Marion. And firstly, just before we before I ask you the next thing, I want to ask, you know, we were just chatting before and there's been changes. I know firstly we were meant to be going on one ship, then they changed it to another ship, and now they've changed it to another ship. And we're not leaving from Durban to Cape Town anymore. Now we're going from Cape Town and ending up in Durban. And we were just chatting before and you just said that, you know, with the change of our tinder, it's actually it's actually beneficial. So, and you spoke about, you know, how it, it's actually a good thing for us as birders. So, just just chat us through that. Why you think the changes that have come on are actually are a good thing for Flock to Marion? Yeah, thanks for this opportunity, Adam. And let me just say that I am once again absolutely thrilled at being able to help in promoting the work that CEO Mark Anderson and his BirdLife South Africa team accompany, accomplish in this diverse birding region we call Southern Africa. They do absolutely outstanding work. And I'm really thrilled to be once again part of the BirdLife team. And this time, of course, out to the Indian Ocean and flock to Marion. As a lifelong mariner, and believe me, ladies and gentlemen, I have spent my life, my, most of my adult life at sea, either at sea or as an expedition leader with literally hundreds of visits to the Southern Ocean, which includes, by the way, landings at both Prince Edward and Marion Islands. I want to go on record as urging any birder not to miss BirdLife South Africa's Flock to Marion Voyage. This is, if you haven't already realized this, folks, this is a rare opportunity to visit one of the most remote oceanic areas on the planet. Quite simply, it's a chance of a lifetime. This doesn't happen very often, so please do not miss it. Also, to allay any concerns, the recent changes to the ship choice and itinerary direction are all huge pluses for the event. The change, for instance, 
to the MSC Musica is a huge advantage over the previous vessel. This is because she is larger, she is better equipped, she is better laid out. Being larger, she is eminently more stable and will provide safe and protected viewing opportunities throughout the voyage. You are not getting on a small ship that's going to rock and roll 30, 40 degrees here. These are huge passenger ships, which are very, very stable. And the reverse itinerary starting in Cape Town and ending in Durban is a stroke of absolute genius. The wind and waves will be at the rear and will be building our excitement and anticipation as we approach ever nearer to the fabled Prince Edward Islands. It's going to be a fitting climax to the voyage. This, quite honestly, is such a rare opportunity. It's an opportunity to voyage where few others have. If you are a South African birder, heck, if you are a world birder, this should be a mandatory life experience, perhaps never to be repeated again. To put it in perspective, I have devoted my life to seabirds and seabirding, and I've only been in this region just a handful of times, over 50 years. So this is a rare opportunity. Don't miss it. There are only a few places left. It's going to be the trip of an absolute lifetime. We're going to have fun. We're going to see birds. Over half of the world's albatross species can be seen on this trip alone, not to mention four or five or so different penguin species. If you're a seabirder, this is not to be missed. If you have to mortgage your house, sell your car, but do not miss this trip. It will be the trip of a lifetime, stated quite simply. So... I said earlier that you are an amazing speaker and you are the keynote speaker on the Flock to Marion uh, 2022. I asked you to put, I put you on the spot and I said this here, um, for those who have never heard you do a talk, I want you to give us a short taster of what a Peter, a Peter Harrison talk is like to experience. And for, the, for those who are about to listen, I've, I've heard Peter doing a talk before and I can tell you something, I had goosebumps, I had tears in my eyes, I was like, impacted deeply i can just say you know it impacted my life and i can still remember that talk vividly so i'm going to give you the opportunity to give our listeners a, a taste of what a peter harrison talk is like so over to you and you can imagine you had flocked to maybe at flock to marin right now the, the the auditorium is packed and peter comes on the stage to deliver his keynote address wow that's a, that's a leading question. Uh, thank you for your kind comments to, to start with. Uh, in truth, I don't really regard myself as a lecturer, but rather more as a storyteller. And so I love telling stories about the birds that I love. And those birds, of course, are seabirds. And a teaser for your listeners. Uh, I will give you the introduction of my favorite story. And that favorite story is Ocean Nomads, the Albatrosses. So for this, I would like you to imagine that you are on a ship, uh, in fact, in the lecture hall, and that the ship is rocking gently backwards and forwards, side to side, and there is a lot of chatter going on in the room. The lights actually start to dim, and then fading through and through comes an image. It's no ordinary image. And on the screen, a breathtaking picture emerges. It's of a lone albatross, its wings spread, set against a savage and brutal sea. It all looks so real, you can almost imagine the waves crashing like cannon fire and the spray in your face. The silence of the audience is now deafening, and I begin my opening lines to my favourite story. The open ocean is to birds what space is to mankind. It is the last and final frontier. For most birds, it poses the harshest, the most unyielding environment on the face of the planet. 
It's an environment that covers nearly two thirds of this, our mostly blue world. And yet, as the ocean travelers amongst you will surely appreciate, it is possible sometimes to be hundreds, even thousands of miles from the nearest point of land, go to the rails of a ship, look seawards and see a bird. But these are not simply birds. These are not sparrows, they are not crows, they are not robins. These are seabirds. And of the world's 430 or so seabird species, there is one group that stands out as simply something very different. Birds that are immense in size, birds that are capable of flying over 1,000 kilometers in a single day, birds that can live to 50, 60, 70, and maybe even to 80 or so years of age. These are birds that will fill each of you with a sense of awe, with a sense of disbelief and a sense of childlike wonderment. And these, of course, are the albatrosses. So come with me now to that world, the world of the albatross. And dear listener, hopefully you will. I will finish this my story when we are aboard the MSC Musica en route to Marion Island, home of the albatross. Hope to see you there. Fair wins. I'm telling you something. I can't wait for your talks. It's going to be, <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> so the the one thing right now, and we spoke earlier about the decline of our oceans and seas, and I want to I want to end with this here because you know you've you've put a lot of your your energy into conserving our oceans and and our seabirds. But the question I want to ask is, and let's be realistic. I know there was a, a Netflix documentary that came out recently, Sea Spiracy, and it's almost like this big doom and gloom outlook. Can we really turn around what is what is happening with our with our oceans? Yes, we can. And I would like to say that we have the means. Now we must find the will. And it is that simple. Without informed stewardship, without conservation efforts, there is no future for our oceans or for our birds. And I would like to point out the work that BirdLife South Africa has carried out in the region and in the seas around South Africa shows that we can succeed. And frankly, we must succeed. Failure is not an option. Peter, I really want to say thank you so much for being a part of this podcast. It's been a huge honor and a privilege to get to chat to you. And I can't wait to actually meet you on the Flock to Marion Marion Voyage. I will bring you my book and ask you to sign it. But it's been a huge honor. And yeah, you're ready. It's just been nice to speak to a guy that's just had a huge impact on so many lives. So thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Adam. And for those of you that are listening, as I say, look forward to seeing you aboard the Flock to Marion. Uh, it will be the trip of a lifetime and I will do my best to make it such. Thank you so much, Adam, for the invitation. We are proud to be working in association with Wild Books to help get all the best birding resources into your hands at a great price. If you would like to support the Bird Enough project and the resources that we are putting out, please click on the link in either the comment section of this podcast or in our social media posts. Your support helps us to improve and hopefully make a bigger impact. Be sure to head over to our website www.thebirdinglife.com and check out all the exciting resources that we have on our website, including our exciting forum section to connect you with the world of birding, birders and exciting birds out there do not forget to follow the birding life on instagram and facebook we really appreciate everyone that takes the time to interact with these accounts 
be sure to check out Birdlasser and download the app on either iOS or Android and keep a laugh list while playing your part in social conservation. As well as Swarovski Optic, one of the world's leading producers of binoculars, monoculars and spotting scopes. So until next time, be blessed and happy birding.